Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Brand Builder Show. And if you've ever been interested in starting a food or consumable products brand, then this episode is for you. We've got Will on the show today. Will has grown IQ Bar um, to substantial size, and he's going to be talking us through exactly how he's done it. Step-by-step playbook today. Will, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to uh, to have you on. Uh, IQ Bar, is that is that how you say it? I mean, it's not like... yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I thought that was the case, but I didn't know if it was like a fancy kind of way of saying Iqbar or, or something. It's Iqbar. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that. A couple a couple people have said that. Our standard logo is a stacked logo. Okay. Uh, we're yeah. trying to move to, more towards a stacked logo, so it's IQ and then underneath bar. But yeah, if yeah. it's all consecutive, it's kind of like RX bar, right? Yeah. You might be like, is that Rick's bar? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but not the I first think, time we've gotten that. No, I think 99% of the time it would be relatively obvious, especially when you sort of see the story of the brand. I had a little bit of a look at the website, which looks amazing, and I love that, which we'll talk a bit about. Um, and I think it's, yeah, when you see the, the story and the heart behind the brand, it's even more obvious. So um, give us a bit of a background before we talk about the journey of IQ Bar, uh, you know, your journey, how you got started in entrepreneurship, where you got, uh, maybe not where you got the idea from, because we'll get to that. But yeah, what, what kind of birthed this, uh, this journey in you? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, not always, but um, I would say starting in high school, I startups started getting cool quote unquote and i got interested in startup culture and just the idea of starting a business and um i come of came of age during a time when uh tools you know the barrier to entry to starting a company uh was much lower and and tools were coming out all the time that made it easier to start businesses so um just kind of had that entrepreneurial bug i you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do in college, and I took a number of courses that I hated, but a few that I really loved were in the realm of psychology and neuroscience. So basically anything brain-related, how the brain works, how it fails, how to make it work better. And I wanted to... I was also interested in business, and so I wanted to work in the intersection of psychology and or neuroscience and business, but there's no real obvious profession sitting at that intersection. So basically, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I took a job in software sales and marketing right out of college, just sort of by default, just to have a job and, you know, learn how to how how a company works and earn a wage and all that. And, uh, and I got really good at a number of things, Excel, PowerPoint, running meetings, pitching a room, etc. But I really didn't like it. I was passionate about software. I was selling predominantly into oil and gas companies in Texas, and I wasn't all that passionate about oil and gas. Um, so it helped too to have some, you know, the other side of the coin relative to, you know, being your own boss and entrepreneurship, and knowing that it can kind of suck, <laughs> and having that reference point, and yeah, that's why I always say for for people like don't go get a job out of college don't try and start something understand how a company works understand what it's like to have a nine to five and go into an office and sit at a desk and have team meetings and all of that understand that 
um, before you take the plunge because you want to have that that reference point. But um, but yeah, wasn't wasn't all that passionate about it, and and then concurrent to me having that job, I got really into nutrition for personal reasons. I had a terrible diet, and I felt bad, you know, on a daily basis cognitively. You know, I'd get headaches and mental lethargy and fatigue and that 2.33 p.m. feeling was a daily occurrence for me and I just kind of felt like crap. And so I got really into nutrition as it related to the brain and brain function and that took me down this hole. Of course, I had that that interest in the brain from college, but that took me down this whole new rabbit hole of, well, where does nutrition intersect with cognition? And read voraciously on the topic and anyway, that all... All of those forces came together to me thinking, hmm, maybe I'll start a brain food company. Yeah. And uh, so I did. Yeah, and that kind of answers the first question, which was going to be, where did you come up with the idea? But it's, it's one thing to come up with the idea. It's another thing to make it happen because you are, what we're talking about here, it's plain to see is not just some, you know, private label, some company that's offering a certain type of food and you've just put a, a logo on it and, and shipped it out. You, you've put a lot of time and energy into making something that um, achieves certain goals. What did that look like? Obviously, it sounds like there's a lot of research that's gone into it for starters. Yeah, a lot of research. I mean, I was never interested in doing something unless I was taking an entirely new novel spin on it. Um, I wanted to play in a big category and not ever get caught trying to manufacture demand, but instead service existing demand, but do so in a new new way. Um, and so, you know, the idea was, okay, I'm going to make a ready-to-eat brain food because that doesn't really exist, but let's look at what's on the market and what's working as a starting point. So bars was a natural one because it's a huge market. You know, I think it's like a $4.5 billion market growing, it's not going away. There's massive existing demand. So cool. What what's working in that market, and how do I mimic, you know, eighty five percent of that, and then take a fifteen percent unique spin on it, which is that brain element. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was. Oh, by the way, I had no background in consumer goods, let alone food science or nutrition. So all all of that was self taught. But um, yeah, I mean, at nights and on weekends, I literally in my kitchen just mix and mash stuff up together for a full year uh, until I was able to cobble together some decent prototypes link up with a manufacturer who said they would make our stuff uh, but it was all trial and error and a lot of research um, you know a lot of research it's kind of like a math problem like creating a food or beverage product is kind of like a math problem it's just like okay if you want X amount of this and Y amount of that and Z amount of that and it needs to cost A mm. you know and then also has to taste good and be a good product and look a certain way and smell a certain way and last 12 months on a shelf what's the equation that makes that happen you know mm. and it's uh, it's tough really tough but um, yeah just kind of trial and error over the course of a year what uh, what is it what is brain food yeah, so I mean, we, we, you can live, there's a spectrum of just like food, it's like sustenance, and then medicine. And so you can, and like medicine 
you could call like nutraceuticals, say, for consumable products. Yeah. And you have to decide where you want to live on that spectrum. Um, and I kind of, I always want to live on the food side. So we're not, we don't make hard claims or anything like that. But basically what we're trying to do is center on whole food ingredients that are rich in compounds that have been shown to be good for your brain. So like take vitamin E, for example, it's good for your brain for a variety of reasons. You know, what's in nature is the highest or one of the highest in vitamin E, almonds. Okay, so we're going to like have almonds be our number one ingredient. It's not that we're pumping vitamin E into the bar and um, so it's, it's, it's sort of being the, the most brain healthy thing on the shelf, but it's not a nutraceutical or a medicine or anything like that. Another example would be flavonoids, which is a polyphenol, which is a compound that's really good for your brain for other reasons. What's highest in flavonoids? You know, in the berry family, it's blueberries. Okay, cool. We're going to have a blueberry bar. In the leaf family, it's matcha. Okay, we're going to have a matcha bar. In the bean family, it's uh, cocoa beans. Cool. Chocolate. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's just centering those formulations on whole food ingredients highest in XYZ brain nutrients. Yeah. Um, but that's there's trial and error, error too there. Like I wanted to include resveratrol, which is a compound in uh, grapes. You know, sometimes people say red wine's good for your heart and uh, circulatory system and brain and things like that. And the reality is it has this stuff called, why they say that is because of this stuff called resveratrol. That you would have to drink a zillion bottles of wine for that to be true. So, But you can actually concentrate that and consume it. It's a great supplement. But, and I tried to formulate it into the bar, but the bar is going to cost 10 bucks. Is that going to work in retail? No. Do enough people care? No. You know, so you have to make these micro compromises along the way to align with realities of the yeah. marketplace and what consumers care about and things like that. Yeah. You mentioned about hard claims, not making any hard claims. Is that a fine line to balance? Because we would have listeners that maybe have supplement brands and there's obviously all kinds of, um, you know, restrictions around what you can and can't say in marketing does that kind of define your product development process? Yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, you have to decide, are you a sub like take like hydration stick pack packets. You, you could either decide there's certain things that are on the fence where you could decide to go into supplement land or try and stay in food and bev land. So that that's key, right? Cause it, it, it you know, it impacts a lot It impacts your branding, how you frame it, what categories you sell in and on in on Amazon like there's a lot of downstream implications of that decision and then once you make that decision even within that it's like okay do I want to make claims what claims do I want to make um, you know obviously claims are much more heavy in supplements but there's claims in food too right 12 grams plant protein that's a claim um, so yeah, you have to be very, very thoughtful about that and very careful about it. I would say a common mistake is people like overclaim. You don't need to overclaim in most cases, and it's sort of an unforced error in most cases. Like, just don't. Like, people get it. People, people can get it without um, being beaten over the head with it, so to speak. Yeah, like, yeah. I, like blueberries, right? 
you don't you could make certain claims about anthocyanins and all these like polyphenols these chemicals in blueberries that are really good for your brain or you could just make a much lighter claim of like brain healthy mm. and so you're better off just making the lighter claim because like a the consumer doesn't care most don't and b you're just gonna get yourself in less hot water and c it's either just as effective or more effective because you don't want to you don't want to intimidate the consumer or be unapproachable and heavy claims are in many cases unapproachable bringing it back to the manufacturing because i think that's a journey that a lot of listeners will be very much interested in you talked about lots of formulations lots of, lots of testing for a year so it wasn't as simple as being able to just go to a manufacturer of these kind of bars and say get them to give you input like you've had to put a lot of the research into this where did you get the confidence from to be able to then give them the final formulation was there like expertise from them did they give you input what was that relationship like yeah it's a, it's a give and take i mean as you get bigger and bigger you can really like kind of say hey we want this like make it happen get mm -hmm. the machinery required to make this happen yada yada mm -hmm. When you start out, it's more so the inverse of that. It's like, mm. hey, this, them telling you, hey, your, your product needs to be X, you know, have XYZ attributes mm. to run on our line. And if it doesn't, we're not going to run it on our line. Yeah. So, you know, you do have to kind of morph your product into something that will run on their line. Um, and that's just a back and forth, right? Maybe it means that you have just random example like let's say you have I don't know 20 grams of almonds in your products and and 15 of those grams is almond meal and five of them is almond butter well they might say hey we actually need it to be 17 grams of almond meal and three grams of almond butter because the way we produce this is going to make too much oil seep out the oil is going to accumulate on the line it's going to cause slipperiness and all these problems and and it's like, okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, we'll make that tweak. And so it's, it's a back and forth um, yeah. across Mint. That's a simplistic example, but there's like 500 of those examples. Mm. And uh, that's a critical, critical, critical relationship to foster and nail is you and your, your manufacturer. Because if, you if you don't have the ability to manufacture while well, you're not going to have good products and you're mm. not going to succeed. What's your journey with manufacturers been like? Are you using the same one you started with or have you moved around? No, we've moved around. I mean, in the way, this is certainly true for bars. I believe it's mostly true for most categories, but as you level up your volume, you know, how much you're making per run and then also just aggregate how much you're making on an annual basis, different manufacturers are better at different volume tiers. So. You're going to start with like a starter co-packer, which is, you know, maybe you're making 20,000 units. Which sounds like a lot, but actually isn't, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint. And then once you generate enough business and business is business and you're bursting at the seams, okay, now you move to someone who's really, their core competency is like 100,000 units a run, so on and so forth, until you get to uh, a co-packer who can kind of go to infinity. It's like we could run 200,000 and we can run 5 million. Um, and that's where we're at now. 
Uh, so we could feasibly scale to infinity. Um, it is a pain, no, no question about it, moving from one to the other. It's like a super mm. painful process because you have to redo all that stuff I was talking about earlier. You have to make sure it runs in their equipment and their processes are good and the quality control is good. And it's centrally local, you know, the, ge the geography kind of matters. And so, yeah. yeah. What did you start with? How many? I think our first run was 30,000 units, but we did, so we did a Kickstarter to start. So, cause there's no other way we needed to generate a lot of demand without having a product, which is kind of mm -hmm. crazy, but that you can do that through crowdfunding if mm -hmm. the crowdfunding campaign goes well. Yeah. And so we did that and we generated, I think something like 2000 orders out of that. Nice. And then that bit off a big chunk of that 30,000 units and then the rest was like repeat orders and we started running ads and we were moving at that point yeah. and then it was like alright can we generate enough like of a customer base to where the next time you run 30,000 that's not too much you know we can we can sell through that because you're also dealing with a perishable product yeah. um, so every every bar you make off the line is a ticking time bomb mm. you gotta sell it before it explodes yeah. AKA expires. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The, um, when you launch then, uh, we'll definitely talk about customer acquisition because that's something that I think is, is very interesting from that standpoint. But um, when you uh, launch then with the, the Kickstarter, did you find yourselves really, um, well, how did you fund it beyond that? Like, did you just manage to be able to make enough sales beyond that to keep funding it? Or have you taken on extra funding as you've grown? Yeah, no, we took on funding fairly early, but our whole model was raise less money more often. So, I mean, to date, we've now raised $10 million, $10 million roughly. Yeah. Um, but, like, six of that was December of 2022, so, like, sure. six yeah. months ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we did the Kickstarter, and that was kind of a proof of concept. And then on the back end, end of that, we raised, I think, 625 grand or something like that. But, I mean, my belief is you just, this is, for better or worse, it's a capitally intensive business, and you mm -hmm. need money, and you're not going to get a credit line from a bank because you're not a credit-worthy company. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need cash mm -hmm. um, to finance you know, you're also not running a 80% margin business. You're running up yeah. at first, like 25, 30%. Hopefully you get to 50 plus, but your margins are never going to be worse than they are at the very beginning. And you're never going to make more mistakes than you are at the very beginning. So you need cash. Like it's just, yeah. there's no two ways about it. But our whole thought was raise the smallest amount possible to like hire a small team and be able to make production runs and invest in ads and, and all that, which we did, and then kind of got a bunch more proof points and then raised another slug of cash a year later. It was a million bucks in 2020, uh, in 20, or excuse me, in 2019. Um, and then a couple of years later raised 2.75, and then a couple of years later raised 5.75, and so, it's all in tranches. Um, yeah. Some some folks will raise like six or seven million, but it's like massively dilutive because they raise it all in that one chunk too early. In my opinion, too early. 
Um, yeah. So. So you, what does that make it? About 2018 you started? Yeah, our Kickstarter was Jan 2018, and we fulfilled our first order from that mid-2018. Okay. And then to give listeners context, what kind of uh, position are you in now, as much as you're able to share, but whether that's revenue or bars you're selling, that kind of thing? Well, this year our goal is 25 to 30 million in sales. Nice. And is the majority of that D2C? I know you've got some other channels as well. No, minority is D2C. I think uh, maybe 13-ish percent would be D2C. Okay. Your website's is really good. Oh, thank you. Um, Amazon is roughly 4X what our website is, and then brick and mortar is a massive chunk of the business. Really? What is, what's driving the most sales for you on Amazon? Is it branded stuff or is there, what kind of keywords are driving that for you? If my uh, wife would be a better person to answer that, she runs our whole e-commerce sure. uh, business and mm. really Amazon being at like the center of that. But uh, yeah, branded for sure. Keywords for sure. Um, diet related, for instance, keto, where our bars are keto client. Okay. Um, sure. vegan plant protein mm. things like that yeah no it's interesting because I just would have thought that D2C would be a, a bigger percentage of it just because of the nature of the product but uh, just shows the power of Amazon eh? yeah I mean there's just certain categories that are big on Amazon like I mean I just think about how many how many like brand websites do you go to to buy stuff um, for me not not many like usually go to Amazon because you can bundle five different things together and take care of all your little ticky tacky shopping um, you'll go to the website for like maybe like big ticket items yeah um, for very specific items maybe it's like Nike shoes or something yeah but for like things that if we're just honest are low price point semi interchangeable like never assume you're so special that you can't be interchanged with something you can be in most cases um amazon is is just where people shop have you found yourselves getting copycat players come and try and take some of your market share yes yes they're not very good though and <laughs> uh it's very very hard what we do i mean that's a it sucks but it's also good because the barrier to entry is low and the barrier to success is extremely high and and the barrier to entry such that you're hitting a compelling price point with a good product is not low it's just yes you could start something it could be kind of similar but when you look at the unit economics the mm. product quality and branding it's actually very 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 hard to compete um so yeah. sort of but not really you obviously have to display your ingredients, etc., which helps a potential competitor see what you're doing from a, you know, an ingredient standpoint. What, what then? How do you how do you defend yourselves then as a as a brand, as someone who's got a you know a unique idea? Um, what do you do to defend that? There's not all that much intellectual property in food and bev. Like, there's some for sure. Um, there's some. A lot of it is is operational excellence and executing um definitely there's a lot of work that goes into formulating and, and just an ingredient list is, it's very 
hard to reverse engineer a bar ingredient list. Um, and then it's extremely hard to reverse engineer a certain unit economics profile. So you might be able to even, let's say you could like one-to-one -one reverse engineer something, reverse engineering the supply chain and the, the unit economics that you've negotiated and gotten to, like that's a whole other thing. Mm. Again, it's like the barrier to entry versus barrier to success thing. It's, you know, um, you could try, you could try, but it's very hard to win playing someone else's game and you don't really know why they did the things that they did. Mm. You know they did the thing, but you are you don't know why they did it. Mm. And then if they're kind of always evolving and improving, you're always like two, three, four, five steps behind them. So it's just, I don't know, it's a crappy, crappy business model in my opinion to try to do that. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. Sounds like the, a big part of your moat is just really hard work, which is probably a good moat to have. Hard work, um, being unique. Again, you want it. You, you do need that like element of differentness. Yeah. Um, capital efficiency, mm -hmm. like obsessing over. I think a lot of these like drop shippers or whatever. It's like they don't really think that hard about the product. Mm. They don't obsess about the product. They didn't make the product, so they don't really know what they're talking about. And um, they don't know what the levers to pull are. They don't know how to improve gross margin. They don't know how to reduce input costs. They're selling widgets. So to really like win long-term, I think you have to understand like fundamentally the guts of what you're making, what all the levers are, where to pull certain levers, where to not, when to pull them, when not. Like if you don't know all that inside out, maybe you could have won in 2020 not so much in 2023 yeah definitely lots i want to I, I i'm trying not to go off in too many directions here because there's so much i want to ask but just briefly on uh customer acquisition you talked obviously d to c 13 percent. i think you said amazon about 4x that so it leaves a good chunk which i'm guessing is is brick and mortar retail yes um, has that always been one of your sort of front run channels or is that a more recent thing? Well, we started with a website and then we layered on Amazon and that was really like the vast majority of our business for a very long time. But then we sort of in tandem kept layering on brick and mortar and it just kept building, 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 building that up. And then there were certain big step change, step changes in that regard with certain big accounts. So like you land Walmart that's a big step change, um, mm. which happens. You know, you get Costco, that's a huge step change. And so it's just chunkier, the business, than like brick and, or than uh, e-commerce, which is kind of like more steady. And and then you get like a, like a Costco and it's like, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's just chunkier, um, which is good and bad. Um, but I think, I mean, I firmly believe Omnichannel is the only way to go. Like anyone who's all, all D to C is setting themselves up for a massively risky business model. And the market is massively punishing that business model. I mean, just look at the stocks of Allbirds, Warby Parker, insert literally any, you know, uh, the honest company, insert any D to C own like first brand. And it's gotten absolutely pummeled by the market. So, 
what's the antidote to that? Omnichannel. Like, D2C is great. I love D2C. We have a great D2C business, but I also love Amazon. I also love brick and mortar. And the flywheel effect that feeds all of it is is so key. Like, someone will see you in a Sprouts market in California, then they'll Google you, then they'll go to your site, and maybe they buy on your site, and vice versa. Maybe they see you on your site, learn about you, they read about you, and then they see you in Sprouts, and then they buy you at Sprouts. So it's, you want to get as many, like, touch points and impressions, both in real life impressions and digital as, as you can. Do you, the channels stack up in terms of profitability pretty evenly? No, brick and mortar is more pop, profitable. Really? Okay. Because there's argument in the, the D2C camp and then the Amazon camp. Well, Amazon, you're paying so much in your fees, but then for D2C, obviously, you have to drive traffic and there's other expenses. Um, so I think they probably come out relatively even for most businesses. I don't know if that'd be the same for you, but then for retail, what is it? Is it just the fact that they're buying it straight from you can sell in bulk load POs or how? What, what is well, it? Well, your customer acquisition is zero. Yeah. <laughs> so that make, that's a good it's a good model if your customer if you spend zero dollars to acquire a customer you're, you're probably gonna have a higher profit margin um, it, it might not literally be zero because you might have slotting fees or but in most of our accounts we've not paid slotting fees so um, no you get they get a wholesale price they get a lower price than than say someone buying you on Amazon would pay by a lot but when you sell it to them and baking all the fees, you you make more profit. Mm. Um, don't get as much customer data. Retargeting is hard to impossible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But just pure unit economics. Mm. I mean, if you look at like most food and bev uh, brands, you know how do they ultimately cross the chasm into profitability? brick and mortar like mm. they, they layer on a bunch of that like walmart target costco and they just get so much volume there mm. that like a 10 percent net margin on that account can like fund the entire business mm. yeah which brings us on nicely to the last topic that i just want to touch on about scaling up um and obviously with brick and mortar the thing that can help i would imagine is um, just the fast turnaround of cash. You know, you've, you've got the PO, although I imagine they probably try and negotiate some pretty uh, decent payment terms with you, but you can turn that cash around pretty quickly. W what are some of those challenges maybe that you face with, with cash flow? We talked about raising money, um, you know, the challenges of scaling up. What are some of those challenges that you face maybe outside of just pure cash flow? Outside of cash flow, or what, what are the cash flow related challenges? Uh, yeah, sorry, cash flow, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Outside of the ones we talked about already. Yeah, cash flow is very, very, very important. Arguably the most important thing um, other than having a good product. So, I mean, this is why you need cat like to raise cash in the first place. But you want, ideally, you can have certain debt facilities. Um, there's more and more options out there now today uh, with you know, revenue-based financing and things like that, although they come at really high APR percentages. Um, but yeah, you need cash and then you want to minimize your cash conversion cycle. Like the time between you 
manufacturing a thing and paying for all the inputs and converting that thing into cash back mm. has to be as tight as possible. Um, so being really diligent about terms, payment terms and things like that is important. To your point, like Amazon, I think it's every two weeks and Shopify is every week or every two weeks. So that, that is just a quicker mm. um, pay, payback cycle, whereas brick and mortar is like 30 days, sometimes 60 days, sometimes mm. cra- I, I've had a 90 day setup, which is insane. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you have, we have gotten into cases where we needed money and we didn't, we weren't going to get paid back in time to, so having certain financial partners that can smooth out cash flow crunches, um, is important. I mean, if you get a like million and a half dollar PO, that's going to cost you 800 K to manufacture and fulfill. Mm. And you don't have 800k, like you're gonna have to find some find 800k. So it's a tougher environment because it's a higher interest rate environment today. Mm. Uh, but there's there's ways you can do it. What are the financing routes you've taken? Uh, we have one partner that's been really great. It's called Ampla. Um, that has helped us to you know smooth out some some cash flow crunches. We got a credit line with our bank that we did use in a couple of cases. Um, we got an SBA loan, small business mm-hmm. association, uh, for I think it was 500k. That was extremely helpful. Super low interest rate. So it's like just pull every thread you can. Uh, yeah. To try and get access to debt. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had investors float us. Like we 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 had this one. I remember there was a Rite Aid PO. It was like an 800k PO, and we couldn't do it. We didn't have enough cash to make the product to fulfill the order, and we weren't going to get it from banks. We called all our current investors and stakeholders, and we're like, "Hey, this is the case. Like, uh, we need a short-term loan," and we got one from from one of the guys so just got to be creative really yeah definitely where there's a vision there's uh there's a way to make these funds come about it's amazing isn't it um outside of cash flow then in terms of scaling up uh what are some of the challenges there the thing i that comes to mind for me is your product line how have you decided when to offer more products i know that's the thing the challenge i've found in growing is uh, i've certainly launched new products too quickly and then found a real crunch around cash flow there how are you deciding when to launch new products what uh products to go into what's that process like um yeah it's a bit of an art uh to be totally honest i mean we one question is do you go into new categories period you know if you're athletic greens, you have one skew and you just scale it to infinity. And that's, I mean, technically that's the best possible business model. Um, I personally, I though prefer the platform model of small platform. So if we want to be a brain and body nutrition company, I want to play in similar to diversifying your business and on a go to market basis of e-com, Amazon, you know, D2C, Amazon, brick and mortar. I, that same principle to me applies to 
product lines and form factors too. So started in bars and we're moving into hydration and we're moving into instant coffee. That sort of diversifies us in a nice way and it's all coherent um, because it's all brain and body yeah. nutrition and they're different different value props. One is satiety, one is hydration, one is caffeination. So the same consumer can be upsold in, across brands, but I think when you're ready, like you wanna, my personal belief is you wanna build out each product line into a multi-million dollar business, stable, has a customer base, people like it. You've worked out all the kinks, good union economics before looking at another incremental one. Mm. And for me personally, I, I don't have ambition or interest in going beyond three categories. I think that's like a nice three legs of a stool, diversified business that's not too hectic. Like I don't want to be managing five different contract manufacturers yeah. and um, you don't want to lose focus. Um, so it's a bit of an art and yeah, you got to have the cash to outlay a investing in a new, because you're kind of starting a new mini company every time you yeah. start a new product line. How are you managing the pressure you talk about not wanting to take on too much uh, complexity with manufacturers, etc.? Is there pressure from shareholders or investors to really push growth and, and um, you know expand quicker? How are you managing that? I guess sort of, I would say I always put more pressure on myself than even they would. I, I feel I want to move fast. So I, even though it's not comfortable and it's not a great quality of life and lifestyle and all that, like I want to push to double every year. Mm. Um, I mean, that's kind of, for me, that, that's the point of a startup is rapid growth. And it, it's also what makes your business more valuable. Is, is revenue as well yeah. as growth rate. Yeah. So you can raise money at higher valuations and with higher multiples if you're growing really fast. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's pressure, but it's I've never really noticed it because it's always less pressure than I would just put on myself. Mm -hmm. What does a working week look like? You talk about uh, lifestyle and not being that amazing. What, what does it look like for you? It's a lot of work. It's like six days of to six to seven days of work all day every day. I mean, not taking vacations for years on end, um, unless you raise a ton of money up front and build out a big team and all that. But in consumer goods, you're, you're going to dilute yourself so much by doing that. It's like it, what don't even try in the category if, if that's the way you're going to go. In my opinion, yeah. maybe it works for other people, but. So you're going to have to live on a shoestring budget and um, be really, really efficient and work, basically work two to three jobs worth of work for mm. a while mm. um, until you hit a certain revenue point, gross margin point, operational cash flow point to where you can build out a bigger and bigger team, delegate. And eventually you can kind of cinch down that insanely hectic lifestyle into just being a moderately hectic lifestyle but it's still, i mean my my lifestyle is still all work all the time more or less what's the end goal then to finish off um 
Where's, what's next for the brand? Are you going to sell it one day? What, what's the plans? Yeah, I mean, the goal is to sell it for sure. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't, you don't ever want to put yourself in a position where you have to sell something or forced to sell something. Mm. You want to keep growing until someone wants to buy it and then evaluate that and act accordingly. Mm. Um, Do you get so, inbound offers for it? Yeah, but not good one. Like not, it's like random aggregators mm. uh, will hit me up or whatever. It's a, mm -hmm. But um, no, I mean, you kind of have to get to like 25, 30 million in sales before you become a sellable business in consumer mm -hmm. goods. It's, it's kind of a weird dynamic. Whereas in s software, you might, you know, you might hit 10 million and you have 30 people knocking on your doors. In consumer goods, it's, unless you're a super profitable company, you know, you kind of have to get to 25, 30, and some people would say even more, like 50 mm. million before any big companies yeah. kind of take note and is interested. So, um, yeah, we're trying to get there soon, but um, mm. we'll see. Again, you can't, you can't have that be the only path. You need to just keep building a great business. Yep. And because if you're building to sell, it's, you're very likely to get disappointed, especially in 2023. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a tough market. Mm, it certainly is, yeah, definitely. Good, okay, and then my final question. You mentioned about uh, caffeination. Spill the beans. Is is coffee bad for your brain? No, it's great for your brain. Caffeine's great. I mean, it makes your brain literally work faster. More than I, I drank two cups of coffee today. feel great. Okay. Good. So, what are you are you doing? Like you talked about instant coffee, are you just adding flavorings to that, or? Yeah, here I have a little uh, thingy oh, here. Nice. IQ Joe. So it's um, oh. rip it, pour it in hot water, stir it, drink it. Uh, yeah, and then there's flavors. There's French vanilla, cafe mocha, hazelnut, and then just original black. Um, awesome. Yeah, that's that's the next one. Very cool. Very cool. Good stuff. Well, I've taken up loads of your time already, so I want to um, kind of let you go. There's so many uh, avenues we could have gone down, so many questions that come up, but this has been super inspiring and helpful. You know, zero to 30 million a year in, in five years, it's, um, it's certainly not normal, and so you've executed very well. So, um, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Where Thanks can people well. find uh, – no, no, it's my pleasure. Uh, where can people find out a bit more about you? Do you hang out online anywhere, or are you too busy for that? Oh, no, I'm very active on LinkedIn, which is, I don't know, maybe random, maybe not, but no. that's where I spend a lot of my time. Not so much Twitter. Um, our website's eatiqbar.com. Our socials are at eatiqbar, E-A-T-I-Q-B-A-R. And, but yeah, if you want to hear my random musings, <laughs> uh, incoherent as they may be, find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, people that will certainly want to do that. Amazing. Well, you guys have heard it there. Check out the uh, links to that, eiqbar.com, and, uh, and find Will on LinkedIn. There will be loads more good stuff like this that he'll be dropping. I am absolutely sure of that. Thanks for joining us in this episode, and we'll see you in the next episode, same time next week. <laughs>